Welcome to the Apathy Project, a conversation where we reevaluate the theology and practices of conservative evangelical churches in order to strengthen the local assembly and preserve biblical authenticity. I'm Paul Schmidt, and I'm joined by Gabriel Hammonds. Today, I thought we might begin by addressing some of the questions our listeners have asked. Mm-hmm. So, first question is, what version of the Bible do I use? Well, generally speaking, I use lots of different versions of the Bible. Both of us have studied Greek and Hebrew, so I like to keep it pretty diverse. My favorite version of the Bible lately has been the Lexham English Bible. Um, As far as an OT translation, I found it to be one of the more consistent ones. Uh, As far as the New Testament is concerned, I like the Net Bible. In conjunction with the Net Commentary, it makes it very easy to follow along with the decisions that the translators made. And even if I don't agree with them necessarily, I know why they made that decision. I like the ESV and the Mounts Bible uh, as far as understandability, but there are some more interpretive translations. The NKJV, I like it for its consistency. I think that it does a really good job of staying true to what the Greek or the Hebrew is actually saying for the most part. Um, And I also like to translate my own passages sometimes if I can't find a translation that I particularly love. What about you, Paul? What kind of versions of the Bible do you normally use? Um, I generally... I've been using the ESV mostly as of late simply because that's the translation that my church uses. Um, And I think uh, the ESV is pretty solid translation it's not too dynamic. It doesn't do anything too crazy. It stays pretty true. So, I mean, I like a lot of different translations for a lot of different reasons. So, I mean, I do like the ESV. It's pretty decent. It's, it just feels like a very standard version, which I guess is why it's called the English Standard Version. I do like the King James Version, uh, despite... But most people around me, I mean, a lot of people pay lip service to the King James Version, but I grew up reading from it. And so mm-hmm. uh, I do just really appreciate the, the general flow, the poeticness of it. And there's probably just part of me that's just used to it. Yeah. And I, I mean, if we're going just on the actual translation itself, it is an older translation. I think it does need to be updated in order for it to actually be relevant. And relevancy, we often see that as kind of a a bad word, but I think there's something to be said for certain things that need to be relevant. We call some things irrelevant. Mm -hmm. So for the King James really to be relevant, it does need to update some of its language. I personally don't appreciate the NKJV very much. I feel like it's very clunky and it got rid of everything good from the <laughs> King James. It just kept the uh, the original text. So I don't like the clunkiness of the NKJV. Where was I going with all of this? Oh, the words. So, I mean, when you have words right next to each other, such as the words dumb and ass, all that's going to do is make people snicker. And so, like, some of these words could be updated uh words like uh prevent in one passage i mean just means proceed and 
you have to explain that every time. Well, that word has fallen out of use in that way. And so I think it's much more faithful to translate it as precede now, just because of the way that our language has changed. So in that way, some of the, the King James Version has run a risk of becoming irrelevant um, and almost ununderstandable, ununderstandable. I don't know what the words are there for that. Sure. But, um, I like the NASB um, simply because yeah. it really shows what's going on in the Greek. Um, so if you've taken Greek, you can kind of see, oh, because of the way that they translated this, you can tell what kind of verb is behind mm-hmm. behind the English and the Greek. Are they more faithful um, to participles, generally? No. There's a few spots where they they mess up. And, uh, <laughs> and it's kind of interesting. They mess up, and then you have people like John MacArthur that come in behind them. And you can tell that he didn't do anything with the Greek. He just read the English translation and went with it from there because he missed the the participle in the way that uh, I forget where I think it's in Ephesians somewhere I can't remember where interesting yeah um I really don't have any exposure to the Lexham or the Net Bible or the ESV with mounts or anything like that um well the ESV and the mounts I just I just put them together so the mounts Bible is separate from the ESV okay um it's his own New Testament copy of, mm. that he made and <clears throat> if you have accordance, the Mounts Bible actually highlights all the words that are associated to one Greek word when you mm. put your cursor over it. So like a, a verb typically has more than one. It's more than just a verb. It includes the, the like the noun in, with it, especially participles. Mm-hmm. So it'll highlight the whole phrase that the verb the verb represents and so i think that's really helpful i wish that all versions were like that um maybe maybe we can i didn't really mean for this to be like a huge discussion on versions necessarily i hadn't even gotten to the hcsb i kind of like the hcsb a little bit i do too too. i like that one that's my like it flows pretty well um so the problem with the nasb is it is pretty halting as you read it uh, just because it is trying to be a little bit more wooden in its translation, just to help those probably that understand the the Greek. But yeah, the HCSB, which has become the CSB, I, I haven't read the CSB, but I have read the HCSB. And uh, I just, I really en- enjoyed its its general flow. It, I thought it was, it, it's, it seems like a pretty good translation. Sometimes it it does some funny things. That's because it is it isn't trying to be as wooden. And so that's the thought for thought or word for word discussion that happens and very few Bibles have ever done word for word because that'd be you wouldn't be able to understand it really. It would be way more confusing than helpful. You can have uh interlinears where it just throws a word up above the Greek word. And so that ends up being kind of a word-for-word kind of thing. But generally speaking, just because of the way that language works, pretty much every translation, aside from Young's literal translation, I think, that's an interesting one, 
they all have to contend with it translating from one language into another all right so that's fun <laughs> so if you were curious about our thoughts on versions those are some of them i think we could probably go deeper into that as far as a as like translations are concerned yeah we could argue a little bit even about texts uh, I'm probably not as settled as Gabriel is, if I had to guess. You mean um, like manuscript text? Yeah, like whether you should um, favor the Textus Receptus or the critical text. Well, there's more now. There's there? the, yeah, there's the Tyndall House Greek New Testament. That's as of 2017. I like that one a lot. I bought that one. Really? Yeah. Hmm. Where does it get its... Uh... It's even more... Um, it's it's even more stringent than the critical text is concerning like the historicity. It has oh. to be like basically only accepts the oldest manuscripts. I don't think anything, um, any of the manuscripts that it uses are after. I'm gonna say like 600 A.D. Hmm. I think they're all before that, and it tries. I I don't know everything about it. There are, there's probably someone out there that could explain better than me what it is. But there's, there are like even paragraph formations that were used that it tries to hold true to. Mm-hmm. Um, it, so it, it has the verses like we have them so you can follow along, but it doesn't have the same um, paragraphing that we have. Mm-hmm. So it's just an interesting perspective. I like it a lot, but I, w- I would say that you're right. I'm, I'm a little bit more settled in that, but at the same time, all of that is extra biblical for mm-hmm. certain manuscripts and I would highly favor um internal evidence over external evidence. Yeah. So if any some of you might feel like you're lost if you don't know what we're talking about, we will I'll we'll probably we'll cover this over another episode um yeah. <laughs> maybe on yeah. canonicity or something. Yeah. I mean, yeah. It just gets interesting with when people start making statements like very argumentative statements and they're basing a lot on them with no no citation or anything like that mm-hmm. uh it gets a little bit uh dicey dicey yeah so let's move on from that we'll, we'll answer another question some of these have been questions people have asked us you know in person who know us um so i thought we might cover them how often will episodes be published right now there's no published date for anything it's pretty much as often as we can get to it we're busy people um paul's got um a new baby and i've got responsibilities um both in the school i still am take i'm auditing some classes and i work full-time and this is a more or less a hobby i think for both of us it's something that we think is important but Biblically, we have responsibilities to our family and to our churches that will always come first. So we're not going to hold ourselves to a strict um, publish date for any of these episodes because we want to be able to prioritize what the Bible says is should be the priority first. And then this is kind of like a, a secondary uh, priority. One question is, how can you contact us? I was surprised to learn we have a very broad audience there are several people that i didn't realize were listening that are listening 
one of them is even in Finland. That surprised me. I can see um, what country and what state and even what city everyone who's listening is from. That's one of the things that I wasn't expecting to be able to see, but I can tell that there's a the audience is growing. And so if you want to contact us, I created an email called questioningapathy at gmail.com. There's no spaces, no caps, just questioningapathy at gmail.com. So if you want to ask some questions, you want to give us some input, if you think... Even some hate mail, (laughs) we'll take that. Well, if you're just going to say, I disagree, I know there's plenty of people who disagree, so... We might uh, read it on air and make fun of you if you do that, (laughs) I'm I, I I'm, we're not going to do that. I might. No, I'm not going to do that to people. As far as guests are concerned, well, you know, are we going to expand the podcast to include other people? I really hope so one day. Right now, we only have a two mic setup, and I can't really include another mic right now. But who knows? Maybe as I have a couple birthdays and I can buy some some recording equipment, we'll be able to have a three mic or a four mic setup and we'll get some other people on the podcast so those are the few questions that i thought of that people might be interested in for now if you have more questions email us and uh, be interested in maybe i'll address the question on the podcast if i feel like it's something most people would be interested in knowing Alrighty then let's get into today's topic now which is extra biblical resources This is a topic which, admittedly, I think I could use some refining on. It's something that I'm very passionate about, but I also know that this is possibly something that not everyone everywhere is struggling with to the degree that I've experienced it. However, I do think that it is something that, as I've traveled, as I've talked to people, it's a big enough issue that I think is worth bringing up. And maybe you'll realize as you're listening that it's something that in your area is a bigger problem than you realized. So before I get into talking about extra biblical resources, I want to talk about the origin of truth. There are three basic foundations for truth in Christian theology. The first one is called premodernism, and this is primarily understood to be the the predominant thinking, the predominant paradigm for before 1500s AD. And this paradigm essentially says God is truth and he exists. It's the idea that we see in Exodus when he says, I am, right? God is, and this God is the foundation for truth. And we, uh, our human reasoning is not disengaged from God. Ethics is not based in human aspiration, but in God. And this mindset requires humility. It requires that we, um, by faith, we seek to understand. A lot of my understanding of this concept has come from one of my classes in seminary. It was on OT seminar. Uh, So I have Dr. Little to thank for that. The second mindset, the second paradigm, is modernism. And this has been very predominant in the 1900s to the 2000s. And essentially, it started with the idea that Rene Descartes said, I think, therefore I am. And so instead of uh, God is, and God created me, and therefore I am, it's I think, therefore I am. And so he's essentially 
like questioning everything down to the point where he doesn't trust any information outside of his own ability to reason. And it really comes down to foundationally, man determines what truth is. And then really in the 21st century, there's been a, a newer paradigm or a new way of thinking, which is postmodernism. And this is essentially the idea that instead of God is true or we are true, we are God. It's kind of like we've, we've replaced God. And so we don't really see a lot of um, postmodernism in the conservative evangelical church. That's more in the liberal church. They've kind of adapted the modern sociologies on that. But in the conservative church, you will see that a lot of them will say they're pre-modernist. Uh, they, they ascribe to pre-modernism, which is that God is true and the Bible is true. And whatever the Bible says, they believe. And they wouldn't say modernism. They would say, you know, man is fallible. He is desperately wicked. He is self-deceived. In many cases, you can see this scripturally. And from a vocal standpoint, they would agree with me. They would say that they're pre-modernist. But I would say that in a practice way, in their practices, sometimes I would say that people don't realize the modernistic mindset that they adapt. So how does this kind of display itself? I would say that this can sometimes manifest itself in a strong reliance on extra biblical resources. So now I am going to transition back to my topic, which is extra biblical resources. By kind of laying a foundation for what we know about, I would say the three primary tenets of Christianity would be the Bible, the church, and believers. All right, the Bible is promised by God to be preserved. It says this in Psalm 12, 6 through 7. You, know, you will preserve them, referring to the, the words of Yahweh, you will preserve them from this generation to eternity. Um, Matthew 24, 35 says, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. This is Jesus speaking. Isaiah 55, 10 through 11 says, So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It will not return empty. It will accomplish what I purpose it to. Um, so there are certain assurances that we have concerning the word of God. Uh, we have verses like 7 Timothy 3.16, which said, All scripture is profitable for doctrine, for proof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. It's sufficient. Uh, the second tenet that I have is the church. We see verses like Ephesians 5.25-27, through 27, referring to husbands, but in relation to husband and wives, we see Christ in the church and we see his relationship to the church. He says that he, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her and cleanse her by the washing of the water through the word. So then he might present the church to himself in splendor, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she might be holy and without blemish. So this doesn't mean obviously that the church will never fall under attack. But we see God's hand in the church. We see God moving through the church. We see the church is the primary mode of God's direction and his purpose and how he plans to accomplish his will. And this church is made up of believers, which is, I guess you could say the same tenant or maybe a subsidiary tenant. The believers 
are given other promises or assurances. Philippians 1.6 said, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work and you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit is working in us. He is sanctifying us. Uh, Romans 8.35-39, I'm sure you're familiar with, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or dagger or sword? As it is written for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep for the slaughter. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ our Lord. Those are some strong assurances that we have as believers. And in John 10, 27 through 29, it says, My sheep hear my voice. I know them. They follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. So these are all very strong promises and assurances that we have regarding the Word of God, the church, and believers. The primary tenets of God's design and will how he plans to accomplish it. These are the things that we have. We no longer have the apostles. We no longer have prophets. We no longer have a lot of things. We don't have Jesus himself. We don't have God directly speaking to any of us. But we do have these things. You know, we're designed, the church was designed to be a place for discipleship, for fellowship, for growth believers have commands and the word of God is at the center of all this being the means by which we know God's will. All of these things are given to us and are afforded promises and assurances. Extra biblical resources have none of these promises or assurances whatsoever. Now you can say maybe that this book is written by a believer, and quite possibly it is. But I would say that you have to take into account that possibly it isn't. There have been resources throughout the years who have been written by supposed believers who I would say were not actually believers, and those resources, although looking at them, you might say, well, this is good, I would say there's an inherent danger that comes with not taking appropriate caution towards things that are very close to Christianity without being primary tenets of Christianity itself, that aren't afforded these promises and assurances. You have to take a look at our adversary, the devil, who he is, you know, what he's capable of. 1 Peter 5, 8 says, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking who he may devour. Luke 4 and Matthew 4, we see Satan using Scripture itself to tempt Jesus. He's not beyond using Scripture to try and baffle the minds of people. We see Satan in Genesis 3, his cunning. He's more cunning than all the other animals. He uses the very words of God and twists them to deceive Eve. Um, in John eight forty four, Satan 
is called a liar and the father of lies. He's called a murderer. He is a very strong and very diligent adversary. And he's not the only adversary that we have. There are antichrists and false prophets and wolves. We see this a lot come up in 1 John. We see also uh, in Matthew 7.15, this is beware of wolves or false prophets. They come in sheep's clothing, but inside are ravenous wolves. Their purpose is to tear apart and to, to devour believers, to break down the church. And so if this is the reality, in Ephesians 6, it says we fight not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. This is our true battle. And so I'm not claiming to speak for our adversary, the devil. But if I were to try and infiltrate the church, if I were to try and break down the primary tenets of the church, the way I would go about doing it is by attacking the resources and the literature that is very closely associated with the church and that in many cases is being handed around almost recklessly by believers. Now, like I said, maybe your church is a lot more cautious about this than some of the people in my church, but I have a lot of people in my church and I've received a lot of books from people over the years and I've read them and I thought, this is not a very good book. Not only because I disagree with it, but because it's not mended like heart and soul to the scriptures. You don't see the evidence of a truth that originates from the word of God, but a truth that originates in the mind of man. It's a modernistic truth. It's almost like when you go to a therapist and you know, you're getting what's, what's wrong with therapists. They might say true things, but those true things are founded in the mind of man. And I personally, this is my conviction, I believe that the Bible is sufficient and it is capable of answering all of our questions for life and godliness. Anything that we could possibly need or want to know, any direction of God's will, we can find it scripturally. So that would be my first kind of argument against using extra biblical resources is the lack of caution. My second would be that I think these resources often diminish the believer's personal walk with the word with the word of God itself. A lot of people will use like a devotional or this like journey book or whatever. And what they're actually doing is they're not getting their hands and digging them into the word of God and studying it for themselves as deeply as I personally believe they should. You know, we grew up with this little song in our children's church and in our Sunday school, you know, read your Bible, pray every day and you'll grow, grow, grow. And although I wouldn't say that that has zero value, because like I said, when I was reading before, the word of God doesn't return void. I would say that that's not what we're commanded to, we're commanded to pray, but we're not commanded to read. The Old Testament kings were commanded to read the law, but we are commanded to meditate on the word of God. We're commanded to 
marinate in the Word of God. We want to be close to it, and we want to engage our thinking. Proverbs talks about the Word of God being, or the wisdom being an enigma, a puzzle, a conundrum that we need to put together, and and it takes discipline, and it takes time, and it takes work, and it takes labor to understand appropriately. And so instead of engaging in discipline and engaging in the process, looking at nouns and pronouns and antecedents and verbs and participles and, and whatever, in, instead of looking at structure and grammar and everything that the author has put in front of you to teach you, we just let other people kind of tell us what it is that it means. So like my, my least favorite extra biblical resource is a study Bible of all time. I absolutely hate them because it, it's so easy to just let your eyes drift. As soon as you don't understand something, let your eyes drift down to a MacArthur note and immediately you have the answer, or so you think. But that is essentially preempting your own personal study of the Word of God and allowing you, through the Holy Spirit, to understand what it is that God has said. And we have promises that God has said in 1 Corinthians 2, verses 11 through uh, 16. It says that, you know, who can understand the mind of a man except the man himself? So in, in likewise, who can understand the, the mind of God except the Spirit of God? But we don't have the Spirit of this world. We have the Spirit of God, which enables us to understand spiritual things. Those things which are understood spiritually, are discerned spiritually, we can discern because we have the Holy Spirit. And so I think we are essentially... Maybe this is a harsh way of saying it, but we're, we're almost replacing the Holy Spirit and his purpose to help us understand scripture with man. And so what I believe we're doing is we are adapting a modernistic mindset and a lazy mindset instead of having a pre-modernistic mindset, which is saying that the word of God is true and that because the word of God is promised that the Holy Spirit will give me aptitude, ability to understand the word of God, I will simply read and study and meditate on the word of God. There are more elements to my argument, but those are the primary two things that I think are kind of tearing apart the conservative evangelical Baptist church. And so if you guys have been waiting for some drama in this uh, podcast, you've been waiting for some disagreement. You know, Paul and I have agreed on most everything so far. Um, Paul doesn't exactly land where I do. He's not, he's not my enemy in this. He doesn't completely disagree with me, but he has some thoughts and he's been waiting patiently to voice some of those. And I'm, I'm curious to hear what he has to say. Huh. I think somewhere we might diverge more possibly be in the um, in the more practical okay what is we have this concept now what does this actually mean mm -hmm. do you want me to explain where I kind of practically draw the line yeah go ahead yeah so 
I think probably my favorite extra biblical resources are things like lexicons and dictionaries. Um, I realize that no extra biblical resource can be purely objective, but I, I try to look for things that are more objective. What do I mean by objective? I'm not looking at commentaries that are like, this is how you interpret this. This is what this means. You know, you, you know, you are, this is your one-stop shop for how to interpret this passage. You know, what I grow frustrated with regarding scholarly academic work in the Christian circles is the level of confidence that a lot of them bring to the table when they write these books. You know, when you are writing a book, there's a, there's, it's because you are trying to impart knowledge. If you, Paul, you, you sent me a picture of essentially a, was an evolutionist, right? Who essentially said, we don't know. <laughs> we don't know where, how this happened or what, what the process is or whether or not this was really the case. And what that does is it completely undermines their premise. Whatever it is they said from there on, it's like, it doesn't matter. Why are you writing a book if you don't know? So if you're writing a book, it assumes that you know, that you have some certainties on things. And when you're writing at that scholarly level, it is embarrassing to say, I don't know, or it can't, we can't be sure about this. If you find a commentary that says that, I'd say, hang on to it. There's an honest approach to a lot of scripture. I think that people try to make a mountain out of a molehill in a lot of cases with certain passages I've been studying. As I look at commentaries, I've been forced to look at commentaries through my academia. And I look at them and I say, wow, they are going way off topic. There is way too much that they are extrapolating from here that I don't think is actually in the text. And I don't really know that the average layman has enough discernment in many cases, especially when the, that person has PhD or doctor before their name, enough courage to say, that's not right. You know, they don't, especially if they don't know Greek and Hebrew, if you're making an argument from Greek or Hebrew and someone reads your commentary and they don't know Greek and Hebrew, but what position do they have to disagree with you at all? None. So there's a little plug here for me. Learn some Greek and Hebrew, people. <laughs> I, I really strongly don't put your understanding of the Word of God in the hands of other people. Take hold of it yourself and be humble about it. Do your best. There's a reason we have discipleship in the church, right? You're not going to get it all first try. Hermeneutics is hard, right? How to study the Bible can be difficult, but... You need to take hold of that yourself. You need to be responsible for what you believe in the Word of God. And you need to be able to defend it biblically. And I know you, dis you, I know you agree with me on a lot of this. Um, so like I said, I tried to seek out commentaries and resources that are majoritively objective. Not exclusively. I know that's hard. But majoritively. One of my favorite resources so far has been the Theological Dictionary of the New Testament. My dad gave it to me. And at first, I had no idea why it was valuable. But when I started using it, I began to realize that, for the most part, 
this is just a collection of information that we have. And the people writing this aren't trying to tell you what to believe. They're telling you this is what we have. As far as information concerning this is, you make your decision about this. So garnering tools like um, like Accordance or Logos, I think a lot of those tools can be helpful because what they do is they highlight, you know, the same word shows up 17 times in this passage. Well, that's interesting. I bet you that word, whatever that is, is probably a, a key theme. It's probably if he's repeating it that much, well, that's valuable. You can do that yourself, but some of these tools, some of these resources will kind of help you move a little bit faster. And so I, I like to stick to resources and tools that, that expedite the process that I already use in Bible study. Now, sometimes there are some commentaries that I've read that have said, here are three predominant theories on what this means. And it leaves it, leaves it there. It doesn't say you should believe this one. It says, you know, here's this theory, this theory, this theory, and this theory. And here are the primary proponents of these theories. And here are the works and the page number for where you can find their thoughts on that. Right? You want to do some research. Something is truly perplexing and you have no idea how to take it. I would say after you've done a ton of work then I would say maybe consult some of these things. If you get to the point where you don't know at all what something means, you're at your wit's end and you just can't seem to figure it out, actually my first suggestion would be leave it. Leave it for a moment. Come back to it. Not everything in, the, in Scripture is going to be immediately understandable to you. If you have the mindset going into a commentary, which is, this is not scripture, this is a man's thoughts, and you're going to be discerning, if you're going to be really careful, then I say maybe you can look into some of those things. And I don't, I'm not saying that all of those resources are valueless, but you do need to take caution. And I think that primarily the problem I see is a lack of caution where I see people just throwing commentaries at people. You read this commentary. This commentary is great. Do this commentary. Read this commentary. Fill your library with commentaries. And those are all potentially helpful. And at the same time, I think they can be potentially diminishing to your walk with the Lord, if you're not careful. Now, like I said... This is something that a lot of people are going to disagree with me on, but that's my position. So diminishing in your walk with the Lord. Hmm. Can you explain that a little bit to us? Like how using a commentary will, or what should I say, could cause a diminishment in someone's walk with the Lord. I think that you are promised scripturally that first off, what you need to know is in scripture 
and that the Holy Spirit, if you're a true believer, it resides in you and empowers you to know it. And there are other people in the church, like your pastor, um, older men or older women, Titus 2, who can help you along that path. But if you are so eager to understand, if you're so hungry for understanding, study the passage more. Pray that God gives you wisdom. Seek out spiritually discerning men in your church to teach you and help you. Now, in our culture, they'll probably take you to a commentary, which is ironic in my situation. But I do genuinely believe that this is the method, the mode, the means that God designed. Oh, So here's actually what, it, what I was just saying actually kind of brings out another problem. So maybe the third thing would be that commentaries often, I would say, can eclipse the discipleship in the church. You know, I don't need to go to somebody in my church and ask them questions about this passage, which is discipleship. I don't have to go to my pastor and ask questions about this passage. I can just look it up in a commentary, and I don't have to make myself vulnerable I don't have to admit that I don't understand or that I'm wrong or that something, you know, maybe someone thinks this is an easy passage to understand. I don't have to be vulnerable and I don't have to be, I don't have to put myself in that sphere of fellowship in order to get these answers. I can just look at a commentary, which like I said, is not, you know, I have to, I can't be superlative in my language because I realize that there are some really helpful commentaries out there. But I don't know that the hyper-consumption of these commentaries is really bringing us to a better walk with the Lord and a better relationship with our church. Hmm. So a couple things here. I don't know if I've ever... I'm trying to remember if I've ever run into a layman that I've heard of that has used a commentary in general, a layman that was not like a college or seminary student. For the most part, I just don't hear of laymen using commentaries in general, and I don't, I've never heard of someone handing someone else a commentary. So, uh, well, I'm talking about, I, I'm, be, I'm being specific, but we are talking generally about extra biblical resources. So mm-hmm. think a Sunday school book, a, a uh, you know, here's a, like you journal and then you read this chapter and you read this passage and it's supposed to like, it's supposed to guide you through a study of the word of God. And like, you should be being guided by other believers in your church. What if another believer guides you through this? Like, would it be wrong for a believer to use one of these, like a, a say a study book, utilize that as some kind of uh, framework? Like, all right, let's let's kind of work through this study. That so there are studies that are more focused on uh, getting into the text, and so 
um, using this study as a, as a as a guide as they as they work through the passage. What are your thoughts on something like that? Yeah, there's just there's a lot of really unknowns in all of that. Mm-hmm. Like, I I would say that would it be unprofitable? Possibly not. Would it almost certainly be better to just study scripture? Yes, not necessarily. I would say almost certainly. Uh, I mean, you know, you have books that cover certain topics, right? Co- topical books. I'm trying to think of a good example. See, I think at this point, this is where I become a little bit more Calvinistic than you. <laughs> wow. So, um, at this point, you uh, tend to diminish uh, the effect that our fallenness has on us. And you have a very optimistic view. Diminish the fallenness of man? Yeah. I don't... I think that I'm... At I, least in a, in a Christian. In an actual Christian, you're almost diminishing the inherent fallenness that is still there. And and so I'm going to give you a little bit of a, a case study here in a second. Okay. But basically, I mean, you've already said so far in this pod that... Basically, if you you come to the scripture and you're gonna know what, you're gonna know what it says. Not necessarily. You're understand it. I mean, that's what you've said so far. I I believe that the Holy Spirit will reveal truth to you. Now, on His timetable, I don't think that you're you're you know, you read the scripture and boom, you know it, you understand it. I don't believe that. I think that if you meditate on scripture, and you do so in fellowship with the Holy Spirit with God. If you are, so we're going to get into my ideas on some other things here. But I do think that there are believers that can be out of fellowship with God. And if you're out of fellowship with God, in the Holy Spirit, you're, you're grieving, you're quelching the Holy Spirit in your life, and you read scripture and you're looking for answers, I'm not sure, you know, you're... I'm not sure what that equation does to understanding scripture necessarily. You know, he might give grace and allow you to understand, but I think if you're walking in sin and you're not confessing sin in your life and your relationship with God, you're far from God. You know, it says you're walking in darkness. I don't think that that necessarily, that's not a conducive, let me put it this way, it's not a conducive state to be in for understanding scripture. So, no, you're not necessarily going to understand everything the first time. I studied 1 John for a whole year, and I understood some things. But the more I studied it, the more I understood. The more I dive into it, the more I meditate on it, the better I understand it. And that is just one of the qualities of scripture that is amazing and wonderful, is that you can learn more. But if you try and take what I consider to be shortcuts to that, you know, you, uh, I, I, I compare it in an analogy form to building a table. You're building a table with your own hands and you put every screw or nail, every 
bit of sanding, every bit of polish, every bit of stain, every bit of design into the table, it becomes yours. It becomes a part of who you are when you study scripture like that. But if you just pick up a table from, you know, your local Amish market, it can be beautiful, but you don't have the same relationship to that table. It's not, it's not a part of you. It's beautiful, but it's not a part of you. And so I, I believe when you walk with the Lord and you meditate on his word, the Holy Spirit will, in his timing, you be patient, you be disciplined, he will reveal truth to you. So, here's the case study. Okay. You have two pastors that, by all accounts, it seems like they're walking with the Lord. They've both studied a passage extensively, and they come to two different conclusions. What happened? I would say... First off, that you know, there's there's a lot of mi- there's a lot of missing information when you when you put forward a hy- hypothetical situation. So I would say, you know, is what they disagree on foundational to the text? Because um, there's a lot of people who do hermeneutics; they study the Bible and they will hyperfixate on things that are unknowable. And I would say maybe one of them, in a moment of pride, possibly, has hyperfixated on something that is unknowable. Uh, or they are seeking to, you know, bring to their congregation something that's new and fresh and hip from the text. You know, they don't want it to be the same old, same old. They don't want it to be, you know, there's, there's lots of... Human conditions, you know, like you said, we are depraved humans. There are human conditions that can affect how we approach the Word of God. So what I would say, though, is the, the cure for that, I, I personally would, would say that, you know, how much are they disagreeing on? Like 4% of the passage or like 98% of the passage? Are they disagreeing on the entire thrust and purpose of the passage if they are i would i would say one of them is not in the spirit or both i'm sorry the the scriptures are not that convoluted for the most part you know maybe maybe you know you get into some things like revelation which are incorporating like every single genre and it's just really complicated and hard Maybe you will get some greater divergences. But for the most part, you know, if they disagree on 4%, I would say that 4% is probably, is probably I can't say for certain, because I don't know their hearts and their minds, and you haven't really given me details for this hypothetical. I would say probably it's a product of some lack of fellowship with God whether it be their pride or their ambition is exceeding their aptitude or they're trying to claim knowledge that they can't have or maybe it's a lack of discipline. Maybe one of them is a lot more disciplined in their study of the text than the other. You know, do they meet together and discuss the text 
and then one of them realizes that they were wrong? Or are they still divergent afterward? You know, is one of them Lutheran and they have preconceptions about the way that the text should be that's based off of a modernistic mindset, a tradition? Is one of them, you know, you're trying to posit to me something that has so many variables that I almost can't deal with it. Does that make sense? No, I think basically what you should do is you should come at it with like, okay, assuming the best in all of it. Basically what I'm saying is that I think this does happen. I'm not sure we're given, oh, you are going to understand all of it perfectly. I don't think that's given to us. I think what you're able to understand, what the author has intended to communicate, not what he's intentionally left out that we hyperfixate on, but what he's intended to communicate is understandable. If you don't believe that, then what you are essentially saying is that there are parts of the Bible that are intended for us to know that we cannot know. No. So that's not where I'm going with this. Basically, I'm saying that there are deficiencies in ourselves. Well, let's assume all the best in my scenario. All the best. I'm I'm walking with the Lord. Are you suggesting that someone who has walking with the Lord, they're in fellowship with God, they have prayed for guidance and the Holy Spirit is in them, the fruits of the Spirit are being evidenced in their life, they have very good discipline, a perfect hermeneutic, and they have, you know, a an advanced to the degree that we can humanly have. They have the most advanced understanding of how to dissect and understand the Word of God. Do I believe that they can make a mistake? Yes. But you're you're just assuming all of these like perfect scenarios. You know, that they, they perfectly are doing all of these things, then they can understand it. If you say, well, they're capable of making a mistake, then of course I'm going to say, well, then yeah, they're going to make a mistake. That this is where this is where I say, like, humility is a huge primary tenant of pre-modernism. I'm not saying that you're always going to get it the first time. You're going to get everything the first time. You're, you're going to study a passage so disciplined, so thoroughly, that you're going to get to the end of what can be extracted from that passage. I'm so, it's just, we're, we're, we're humans. Like, I admit that. That's not the problem. The problem is, I think in this discussion, is where are you going to supplement that lack? And I would say you supplement that lack with discipleship in the church and with a, a further more disciplined study of the Word of God. Maybe you leave it and come back to it. Accept that you're humanly deficient and that you aren't going to understand everything the first time. I have no problem. In fact, I heartily advocate when you come to a point of Scripture you don't understand, just saying, I don't understand. Write a question mark. I don't know. And coming back to it. I strongly advocate that. That's something that is very, very substantially missing, in fact, in these resources that I'm saying we should 
potentially be cautious of. That attitude, that mindset that you're cautioning me about is what I'm saying is lacking in these resources. That's why they're potentially dangerous. Because they create a confidence where there might potentially not be legitimacy for that confidence. Because how am I going to disagree with this PhD, you know, whoever? If he says it, that must be the case. And I have met believers, you may not know some, but I have met believers who either have their one guy or one commentary set that they believe, or if they use multiple, they just cherry pick. They say, well, I'm just going to pick which one I, I think makes the most sense. And I just completely disagree with that mindset. And I think you do too. Which specific part of that? Just cherry picking commentaries that, you know, like th reading them and being like, well, this one makes the most sense. So I'll agree with that one. Um, I don't know if that's how commentaries are to be used in general. Um, but sometimes, I mean, I think it's good to have a plethora of commentaries. Uh, because, um, and I mean, it, I think God does give us our reasoning to be able to use. So in looking through the commentary, sometimes you can, you can see, oh, this guy, he is really good on this point where he sticks with the scripture, but then like he kind of gets off on this hobby horse. And so... You're like, it doesn't seem like the text warrants this conclusion. Um, and so you pull out another one, and this other guy doesn't have that same hobby horse. He's able to walk through it without stepping on his hobby horse minefield. And I think that the same issues that you run into in a commentary, you can run into with someone in the church. So I think that, no, you shouldn't leave off being discipled in the church. But I think that as a whole, the church can utilize these resources. And that, it goes back to your idea of, uh, uh, you use the word protections. I said promises, reassurances. Promises, okay. But the, the church is still made up of fallen humans. And honestly, when you really get down to it, like boots on the ground kind of stuff, like we're just trying to get through life. In all honesty, like some of where you're coming from is the fact that you you have had seminary experience. You you have had the time to study these things, and then some of it is your own makeup. But where I see issues is like people are just out there trying to live their lives, and they don't have the opportunity to maybe study it as deep as you, and remember reading the book tactics mm -hmm. yeah. so one of the one of the things that he raises is the person that always runs to the experts in that conversation essentially you set yourself up as the expert and so basically you're like i've done all this work in the passage so anyone that has a contrary idea here's my credentials yeah. And I'm like, so, I mean, but what about the guy that's done a little bit more work than you? I mean, at what point is enough? Do you get what I'm saying here? Like, I'm trying to make this very well, practical. Well, there's never enough. 
There's never enough study of the Word of God. I, I, I very much think that you will never, if you had, <laughs> you know, if the sky were made of parchment and the, the oceans made of ink, mm-hmm. you could never fully describe the love of God. As the one hymn says, you know, you're never going to have enough of the scriptures. Just keep studying. Stay humble. That's all I'm saying. And I agree with what you're saying. But actually, I think that it points out another fundamental problem with this is that I have run into, and so is my my father, who's pastor slash missionary, many people throughout the many churches we've been to will try to bring these or this TV evangelist or this book I'm reading or this, not from a humble and inquisitive, genuine, careful, learning mindset, bring these resources to the, to the pastor and say, help me understand this. But they try to use it to back up their personal theology and create disunity in the church. And what the pastor now has to do is not unravel this pers- this individual's theology of their own personal study of the Word of God. Take them down to say, okay, so how did you come to that? They have to now unravel all of these works of this certain author. Hmm. And you're not, you're not sowing seeds of unity. You're sowing seeds of disunity. And you're using these PhD people as your mott in the Mott and Bailey logical fallacy. Some of you might be familiar with that. It's essentially having a stronghold and then the Bailey is a very vulnerable position and you're holding the vulnerable position, but you're pointing to the mod, the stronghold, and you're saying, this is defense for my Bailey, but it isn't. So this is a, this is another fourth, I would say, problem that I see coming from this. If you study the word of God yourself, and you say, Pastor, can you help me understand this passage in Matthew? I don't understand it, especially when you look at Luke and how it parallels. Man, this is confusing. Boy, that is an opportunity for discipleship. And I don't think there's a pastor in the world who wouldn't be thrilled to have that conversation. But when you have people coming and they're like, I was reading this book, and he's got these ideas, and I kind of like them. You know, can you tear down his ideas? Well, maybe your pastor likes that kind of conversation, too. Maybe. But like you're saying, boots on ground, most pastors are dealing with a lot of issues. And they really don't have time for that. They don't have time to dismantle every author. And they don't have that author there to defend their positions. I have to read the book and try and and exhume the original intention of that author and then break that down like that's a lot of work for a pastor especially just to try and help a a layman who's bringing this you know especially if this is like Mm, i don't know that you really do i think usually the a person has read the book they come to the pastor they're like this is what i understood from this book can you help me think through this and then the pastor You've is been able to... You've been in some to, nice churches. Yeah. No, I, 
Uh, You've been in some nice churches. <laughs> I am very thankful for the church that I'm in. But, uh, yeah, so really, when a person, like I said, when a person reads a book, they have an understanding of what is being said. And so they come to the pastor and they say, this is, this is what I'm understanding from this book. What are your thoughts on that? And so the pastor, actually, in that moment, isn't necessarily dealing with that author. He's dealing with this person's understanding. And at that point, he can bring Scripture to bear on that. Say, well, this is what I know from Scripture. Um, but Some of these the people aren't, that, aren't really looking for... Now, obviously, we're, we're dealing with hypotheticals. Mm-hmm. Sorry, I interrupted. Um, yeah, in your scenario, that paints very, you know, that paints like a very likable situation. Mm-hmm. But I'm telling you, very easily, it can go the other way. Mm-hmm. And, and it, I think that's some of the contention that arises in this whole conversation is the fact that I think in the church that I'm going to right now, the people do utilize resources rather well. The people do have respect for their pastor. Praise God. And so, and the pastor that I'm under, he appreciates literature. He appreciates uh, different ideas, different thoughts. I mean, we are not omniscient. And so, um, sometimes there are, there are what seem to be wise men that have gone on before us that have written down their thoughts where they do interact with the scripture and what they have to say is helpful and is very some of it has been very forming even in the life of our church i mean this may anger some people and uh make others rejoice but uh the nine marks ministry has been very formative in our church it's been a very healthy thing it's been sometimes it gives you a it gives you a starting place in all honesty it gives you a like okay here's some passages to consider and to think about um they they create an argument and so our church has never just said okay we we have our um bible plus nine marks and here's what we're going on it's like okay Here's some really good thoughts. How do they jive with scripture? Oh, they jive with scripture really well. And some things, some things are a bit like what you have done uh, in your own thinking of where the Bible doesn't explicitly say, this is how you get your deacons. And so they provide a helpful, wise way of, okay, here's some things to think about. And it's all based on scripture and on scriptural wisdom. But they're putting out a, a plan based on wisdom for how to go about accomplishing this. So I agree with you. I, I, I want to clarify for anybody who's maybe kind of gotten caught up in the weeds of my arguments. I don't think all extra biblical literature is just like of the devil, right? Like, I do think that it is something to be cautioned of. But to your point... When you bring up the nine marks, part of the reason why, and I agree with you, some of those books I've read them are very helpful. Part of the reason they're helpful is because they are a, they're they're different 
than the tradition that we've been brought up in. In what I would consider some of the modernism, modernistic thinking that we've been brought up in. They're more free thinking in their, when they study scripture, they say this is scripture and I'm going to obey God rather than men. And I think that the part of the reason why those resources have been helpful is because they are being pre-modernistic instead of traditionalistic. Hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. You know, so don't, don't jump from this tradition to this tradition, but say for yourself, I'm going to be pre-modernistic. Now, it just so happens that some of these thoughts in this book are really, really pre-modernistic and good. And if you have the discernment, and I'd be say really careful because everyone is more confident than they, you know, they should be. You know, everyone thinks they're discerning and not all of us are, and, you know, including myself. I got to be careful. Some resources can be very helpful. I agree with you on that. I'll give some of that ground. But I would say bring to bear more caution, especially with people who aren't really aware of this paradigm of pre-modernism versus modernism, who are just trying to, like you say, get along in life. They haven't had the time to think about this, and they're more vulnerable to these pitfalls. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. So primarily the reason I wanted to bring this all up so early on in the podcast is because the podcast is itself an extra biblical resource. And I don't want to be hypocritical. Um, A lot of people might hear some of my arguments in the future about this resource or that. And I just want to bring some of these thoughts. Uh, Not all of them are perfectly well-rounded. Not all of them are totally conclusive. Um, But I want to bring a greater awareness to just this idea. And how does this affect what we're doing in the church? What are some of perhaps the long-term effects to some of these mindsets that sink in fairly early in the Christian life? And have you observed any of these things? So, Paul, is there anything else you want to add before we wrap things up? So, yeah, basically at this point, we are, we are raising awareness. We want you to think about these things. We don't want you to run home and burn your library or anything like that. That's not what Gabriel is suggesting. But he's, he's recommending some caution. He's recommending digging in, getting your, getting your hands dirty, but <laughs> at the same time more clean, I guess, in the Word of God. Um, and really uh, struggling through these things, not just... Uh, most people I know that use commentaries, they all, most of the people I've run into usually say, okay, don't run straight to the commentary. Really work through the passage and figure out what it is that the passage is really saying. And then sometimes the commentaries give you a little extra insight into the language because we are working with a text that is translated from another language. And so sometimes there's nuance that um, the commentator has worked through and studied through 
and so he can give some insight there. Sometimes they have helpful applications of like, oh, I didn't think that, about how this passage could also touch this aspect of life. So there are some very helpful things in resources, but that's definitely not your lead-off batter, as one of our professors would put it. At this point, we should probably wrap it up. We'll probably touch on this some more. Um, all of our conversations will kind of be ongoing to some extent or another. Sure. This is a project, like you said. Yes, <laughs> it is a project. Uh, so if you have any questions concerning our podcast, uh, feel free to contact us at questioningapathy at gmail.com. As always, we'd like to direct you to the theme verse of our podcast, which is Romans 12, verses 9 through 11. So we are to hate what is evil, cling to what is good, be devoted to one another in love, honor one another above yourselves, never be lacking in zeal, but keep spiritual fervor serving the Lord.